cheap, clean, inexhaustible energy is the promise of nuclear fusion. It's a promise that's been made for quite some time now. The sun can do it. Well, why can't we? In a Wellington warehouse, a young Maori physicist, Dr. Rautu Mataira, is working on what's been called the Holy Grail. He and his team of around 30 are trying to build a controlled fusion reactor. Ambitious much, Dr. Mataira? His company is called Open Star. It's one of maybe 30 fusion startup companies around the world. And he's with me now. Kia ora. Warenikam. I'm imagining that so many startup companies to do with fusion are to do with climate change, the need for energy, the need to get away from fossil fuels, right? Absolutely. There are applications before we get that far. So there are things that you can do with fusion before you get to producing energy. But that's what gets us all excited about it. What can you do with fusion before you start producing energy? Um, you can solve some of the other problems we've got. So now that a lot of countries are shutting down more traditional nuclear power plants, so power plants that do fission instead, we're actually losing some of the sources of medical isotopes that we use for medical imaging, cancer treatments, and having a working fusion reactor is a way of recreating those isotopes, which will be really important for those families. Ah, so there's some kind of, even if you fail to produce energy, mm -hmm. you'll be able to produce something that's useful. If we get that far, yes. This is definitely a marathon rather than a race. How long is this marathon if we're talking about energy production? There's an old joke that it's uh, been it's 50 years away and always will be 50 years away. Yeah. That joke turned into 30 years away and always will be 30 years away. Now when I talk to people, they say 10 years away and always will be 10 years away. Wow. I think it's more like 10. Do you? 7 or 10 years, yeah. Before what? Because, I mean, we've heard various things. For example, the National Ignition Facility in the United States, it achieved fusion ignition in the lab with what it calls a net gain in energy. Yes. Which I don't understand because mm -hmm. it was done by lasers mm -hmm. and the lasers use more energy than the United States. Absolutely. Station. What? That's the correct intuition about the system. So the question is, if you build a machine and you put energy into the machine, mm. the question is, how much energy can that machine give you back? So that's what we would call engineering break-even. And the NIF result is very far away from that. It's about a factor of 700 away. Just break that down for me. What do you mm -hmm. mean, 700 away from what? So they use 700 times more energy uh, than but, they actually created in the But if that's the, the case, field. how do they say that they had a net gain? So the net gain, what they do is they ignore the whole machine. They go to the core of the machine to the fuel where uh. they focus those lasers on. And it is true that more energy came out of that fuel from fusion than went into it because of those lasers. Where would you get the energy from to start your fusion process? So for experimental prototypes, we still rely on the grid. So we take a little bit of energy so that we can run an experiment and see if our machines are performing the way that we expect. All right, so that would be proof of concept. Proof of concept, But to exactly. actually do it. Yes. Well, once you're actually building a power plant, you'll probably need to draw a little bit from the grid over a period of time to charge up, say, a capacitor bank. A little bit? Uh, a couple of megawatts, probably. So the, the point of a fusion reactor is that once it can produce its own power, it never has to draw energy from the grid to keep working. It actually just recharges its own capacitor banks while it's operating, and during downtime it um, has that energy in the capacitor bank ready to turn itself back on later. And, and the fuel that you would use... 
So the easiest fuel to use is a combination called deuterium and tritium. Uh, deuterium is very abundant uh, in seawater. Tritium is something that we actually have to create in the reactors themselves, uh, and we use uh, lithium to do that. So we bombard the lithium with neutrons, and then the lithium turns into tritium. We collect the tritium, and we put it back into the fuel. And deuterium, is that easy to get out of seawater? Yeah. Yeah, I can buy enough deuterium to do everything I need today. So it's the tritium that's the tricky bit. It is a tricky bit, yeah. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. So you need the tritium to make a fusion reactor, and you need the fusion reactor to make the tritium. Yeah, so how do you break out that? There's about 20 kgs of tritium available in the world today. Um, that would run a power plant for about two months. Where is it? Uh, Canada, <laughs> of all places. Well, they're nice. They, they are nice. Sam. Yep. I watched one of the Canadian uh, fusion companies basically say, we have a Canadian fusion company, good luck getting it from us. (laughs) The fusion process creates waste. It's not waste-free. That's correct. What is the waste? So the waste that we're most concerned with but we think is very manageable is fusion creates these neutrons. And those neutrons aren't contained by the magnetic fields that we contain the plasma with. So they just fly away from the reaction and fly and they hit the whole structure. We build that structure to keep all those neutrons in, but everything there is getting bombarded with these neutrons. Creates what we call low-level activated waste. So it's the lowest class of, frankly, nuclear waste. Um, But it's a similar class of nuclear waste that we get in hospitals because we use radiotherapy treatments all the time. If you uh, go into a hospital for uh, radiotherapy, all the things that you touch, all the clothes, all the gowns, that's all disposed of carefully in the same way that we would be disposing of these materials out Mm. of a fusion power plant. Now, I've jumped the, the, whatever you jump, the sofa, the shark, um, to go right to the sort of the end point. Mm. But... What makes you think that the tokamak, which is the usual approach to fusion, is not the right approach? So... Um, Well, first of all, tell me what the tokamak is. Yeah, sure. So the tokamak is uh, the orthodox approach. Uh, You build a very large, let's say, donut of magnets, and you get a magnetic field inside the donut. Now, I'm using hand gestures right now, which isn't great for radio, I apologise. But no, that was good, donut, inside donut, yes. Inside donut. Um, And that really strong magnetic field allows you to hold on to a plasma without physically touching it. And the important thing about that is that you need to get that plasma extremely hot in order to fuse, and if you touch it, it cools down don't and you can't don't, no. don't touch it I think everybody worries about melting things if they touch it but it's the complete opposite you cool the plasma down and you'll never get fusion so how do you get the what's the plasma made of so the plasma you want it to be just for fuel mix so you asked me what that was before that's for deuterium and vitridium so these isotopes of hydrogen alright so it's, not, it's nothing but those isotopes of hydrogen you get impurities and you don't want them there so you're putting quite a lot of effort to get rid of anything that's not the fuel and you stick it in the middle of the of the of, this is the tokamak method mm-hmm. you stick it in the middle of the magnetic donut mm-hmm. it, it heats up to something like you know 100 million degrees and the magnet is there to contain it? Yes. 
to hold on to it. And what's the magnet made of? So that's the big thing that's happened over the last, say, decade, is that we've changed the material that we make these magnets out of. The most successful tokamak to date is actually made out of copper. That will ne- Everybody agrees that that will never be a fusion power plant because it costs too much energy to run the magnets. The copper magnets are resistive. The next step from that was called low-temperature superconductor. That's what uh, ITER in France, this 20 billion euro project, is based on. Right. Um, and then people argue about whether or not that's going to get us to useful economic fusion. Why wouldn't um, it? It's fundamentally limited. So we know exactly how far we can push it from a performance perspective. And uh, it caps out at what we would say is about 12 Tesla. Um, you really want to get to 20, 25 that Tesla. That's very fair enough. So um, if you've ever played with a really strong magnet, like a neodymium magnet, that's about one Tesla. Mm. So 12 times is a lot better than that. An MRI magnet is about three Tesla. Mm. Um, So we're still talking about very powerful magnets, but still not powerful enough to do fusion. This third step, which has happened over the last 10 years, is called high-temperature superconductivity. Mm. And that can get us to 20 to 25 Tesla, which a lot of us, including these new private companies, think is what we need to build economic machines. So why is anybody still bothering with the low-temperature superconductors? Uh, Large organizational institutional inertia, I think. So they committed to build ITER back in the late 80s, um, and that commitment is a collection of nation states who have signed international treaties with each other. Just like when you want to end a war or have a free trade agreement, they sign treaties with each other to commit to building this thing. None of them think they can actually pull out. And now it seems like a hopeless cause, does it? Yeah, so there's a company uh, called CFS who are taking all of that physics, all of that understanding from ITER, they're adding this new material, the HTS, so that they can shrink the size and make it economic, at Uh least in their view. And they will probably be able to turn their machine on before ITER. And at that point, the question really will be, what was the purpose of ITER? What is the continuing purpose of ITER if a private company has beat them to it? I was reading a story in Scientific American that said that ITER is on the verge of a record-setting disaster, accumulated schedule slips, budget overruns, threatened to make it the most delayed and most cost-inflated science project in history. It's the only science project that I'm aware of that was attempted by bringing together this many countries with this sort of scale. Most of the more impressive science projects have typically been undertaken by individual uh, countries. And that really keeps the organisational simplicity within grasp. Mm. I think running this thing with all these different countries involved has been really difficult. All right. But at the other end of the scale, there you are, you know, tiny yet nimble I imagine is how you would describe yourselves thank you so so tokamak nah you're not doing the tokamak what are you doing so we're building a machine called a levitated dipole and I'm thinking whether or not we're so small and nimble that we can change the name but we're going to stick with levitated dipole for now okay LDR Oh, yeah, levitated dipole reactor. And so if uh, listeners have a view of a tokamak in their mind, the easiest way I always think about the dipole is that it's the opposite of a tokamak. So where the plasma was, the plasma used to be a simple ring in a tokamak. Mm. That's now our magnet. And now that produces a magnetic field that comes through the center of our ring and spreads out around the ring into space. Um, It looks exactly like the magnetic field that's around Earth and around Jupiter, and that was the inspiration for the concept. 
And that magnetic field then allows us to confine the plasma. But now the plasma... Uh, surrounds the magnet instead of in a tokamak where the magnets surround the plasma. What's so you kind of flip it on its head. Um, the big advantage, there, there's, I could go on and on and on. But the, You've got plenty of time. Thank you. Um, the big advantage. At least 10 years. <laughs> is that this concept was inspired by magnetic fields and plasmas that we find in nature. So the magnetosphere around Earth is a big plasma. It's caught by the solar, so the solar wind comes in and puts these particles into the magnetic field, and they get trapped there. And they've been stably whizzing around basically since Earth had a magnetic field, so we're talking billions mm. of years. Um, and that stability is a really big challenge for the tokamak. A lot of the complexity and difficulty in tokamaks is the fact that their plasmas are not naturally stable. They have to actively stabilize them. And that's one of the big fears of tokamaks is that if you don't keep it stable, you'll destroy the machines. And so you, you, how, how would you get temperatures that high? So... I think the, the other misconception here is that temperature and what we might call heat are strictly the same thing. So they're not, they're not quite the same thing. Mm. The trick is that there's very little material in the plasma. So if you take a huge machine like ITER, which is about five stories tall, mm. makes a huge plasma, there's only one gram of fuel in that plasma. And so you can put a little bit of heat to get a tiny thing very, very hot. And as long as you don't touch it, it won't cool down and you can keep it hot. Are you ever terrified by the thought of all this? Uh, what, you can have a few different thoughts. What in particular? Well, these extraordinarily high temperatures. How to contain it? What happens if it goes wrong? Uh, am, I, am I terrified of it? Um, no, ter terrified is probably not the wrong word. The, the way that we think about it, and this is a cultural thing of the company at OpenStar, whenever we bring someone on board, it's more about the fact that on paper this machine looks like it should work. The theory tells, it, tells us that this device works. And you bring new people on board, and this is the philosophy that I have. It's actually our job to prove that it won't work. Like, if nature disagrees with the theory and levitated dipoles are not possible, it's our job at OpenStar to figure that out sooner rather than later. So when I asked you if it ever terrifies you, it's failure that terrifies you, not the... 100 million degree it's, temperatures. Yeah, it's, there's two types of failure. One is Mother Nature disagrees. No, but failure to achieve. But failure yeah. to achieve, failure to actually test it. If OpenStar winds up because we can't raise the money or we can't build the team or one of our magnets blows up and people lose confidence, uh, that would be deeply, deeply disappointing because people will still look at this concept. They'll still look at the theory and say, why aren't we building these things? Um, that's that's for failure that terrifies me. I want to give this its best shot, and if it doesn't work, I want it be, to be because Mother Nature said so. Right. You yeah. want to, so you want to stop other people wasting their time thinking about it. In other words, yeah, but it's also my measure of success, <laughs> and the fact that I don't want to be a failure to some degree. No, um, the levitated dipole reactor, the one that you're doing, that has been tried. Mm. In the United States, mm. MIT, I think, yes. and was abandoned mm -hmm. because of funding cuts yes. not that long ago. Mm. 
If it was promising, why didn't they continue to fund it? So we've actually talked about Verizon a little bit, which is this big project called ITA. So those countries that contribute to ITA, including the United States, they have these international commitments. They cannot reduce their funding. And so if you have 100% of your fusion you know, science budget and 90% of that is going towards ITER and your president turns up and says, I want to cut that budget by 10%, the 90% that are going to ITER was safe. The 10% that was going to everything else is up for grabs. And so it wasn't actually just the levitated dipole that was cut. MIT was also running their own tokamak called Alcatraz-C, and that program was also cut. So these funding cuts were widespread within the U.S. research system. All your money is coming from who? Uh, so right now, the majority of the money is uh, private capital from venture capitalists, basically. Right. So people who specialize in uh, investing in really risky businesses like this. Okay. Nothing sinister? No, you know, arms manufacturers? No, no. So actually, um, the last time I was in this Just building... Checking. Yeah, thanks. The last time I was in this building was uh, to see the Overseas Investment Office, who did an, a complete audit of all the investors, all of their investors, all through the shell companies, just to make sure that uh, none of the uh, actors or investors were bad actors. Um, somebody says... How can this energy surplus be converted into a reliable continuous supply of electricity? Is that beyond your pay scale at this point in time, or do you think about that? No, we do think about that. So the thing that's really attractive about fusion is that it's actually just a way of generating heat. Um, and generating heat is the same way that lots of our existing power plants work. So a coal-fired power plant, you're burning coal to make heat, to boil steam, uh, to drive a turbine. The only part that's wrong with that setup is the burning coal part to generate the heat, and that's creating the CO2. So the, the dream with fusion is that replacing the coal part is very complicated. You have to build a fusion reactor, but everything else that follows that is well understood. We know how to turn heat into steam, into electricity, and sell it to people. It seems so quaint, doesn't it? Like... You can have all your newfangled stuff, mm. but basically we're still in the steam age. Uh, steam, the steam turbine is, a, is an amazing <laughs> device. It's really close to the kind of maximum efficiency that physics will allow, um, and we've figured out how to make them really, really well. Um, but this is true of all the technology we make. It's amazing when we, when we make it, when we're researching it. It's really inspiring. And then we start selling it to people, and it becomes routine. It becomes every day. My hope for OpenStar is that um, in a couple of generations, people just think of us as uh, a utility. A utility. Mm. Yeah, like any other. Like any other. Like your phone bill. Uh, um, when you set out on this, I, mean, I think you began by trying to do hybrid electric aircraft, didn't you? That was the uh, project that my PhD was part of, yeah. And that was what you were trying to do at Robinson Research Institute at Vic University. Correct. What happened to that? Well, that work is still going. Um, so I was very much part of a team. Um, I had my own part of it and made my own contributions. Um, but one of the nice things about being part of a team and part of a research institute is that you know that those ideas, those concepts, that technology is going to keep moving forward. Robinson has really impressive industrial partners with that. So they're working with Boeing, they're working with Airbus, they're working with NASA. So that technology is in really safe hands. It doesn't need um, kind of those entrepreneurial champions in the same way that the levitated dipole did. Um, there are commercialization partners for that technology. And so what 
made you think that there was room to make essentially discoveries in the fusion zone? Uh, so a couple of things. Probably two things had to be true for OpenStar to become a thing and the kind of wonderful coincidence of being in the middle of it. One was this HTS technology. And so Robinson is one of the world leaders in high temperature, high temperature superconductivity. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first materials was actually characterized and patented at Robinson. Um, and from there, they've been working up in the application chain. Just as a matter of interest, what's the advantage of a high temperature superconductor, which is uh, something that conducts energy but only at very high temperatures Mm. compared with a low temperature superconductor so it's actually it's a classic physics misnaming of things right so low temperature superconductor came first and that's liquid helium four degrees above absolute zero extremely cold and it's a physics colloquialism to say oh it's low temperature it's extremely low is what it really is and then when we came up with hts the distinction wasn't compared to room temperature it was compared to the lts oh, and so, so it's actually still pretty chilly it's still pretty chilly yeah okay. uh, these are still cryogenic but more importantly we use liquid nitrogen to cool these Okay. There was news, very exciting news recently. Did mm. you see that? I think I know what you're about <laughs> to ask me about. The first ever room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. Mm-hmm. I think it was from Korea, right? They yep. announced this. They called it LK99. And unusually, um, you didn't need to get the material very cold to get rid of the resistance. Mm. Turns out, nah. It was, didn't yeah, happen. No. Wrong. Wrong, yeah. How does somebody get that wrong? Like, was it a... Did they measure the temperature? Do you know the inside story of that? I don't know the inside story. Because it would have been revolutionary, right? It it would have been. um, I don't know the inside story, but as soon as those papers came out on the archive, I did read them um, because I knew I was going to get questions about this. Um, And there's been a lot of argument about the nature of authorship, the nature of getting scientific work peer-reviewed, for Mm. example. And... I think a lot of people have been relying on the peer review process to kind of fact check these things or verify them or uh, replicate the experiments through this process of peer review. But actually, when you read those preprints on the archive, the real thing that comes across is the peer review process is like an exam. It provides a minimum quality of uh, publishing that, you know, you need to pass it over to an editor who passes it on to reviewers who then reads it and then goes, this is crap. Um, Basically, what I'm saying is the papers that went onto the archive were not in a state to get through peer review, just reading them. Um, They were not ready. And what came out later was actually the authors of that paper did not all agree to put it out there. They did not think that work was ready. So you ask how you stuff it up. It's like, well, it was half-baked. That's right. what it was. But the temptation is to publish. Oh, the temptation is, yeah, the temptation is there's a Nobel Prize on the line and your entire career um, and success and fame is all on the line. And that obviously got to somebody's head. Right. Going back to basics for a moment then, you've got your hydrogen atoms from your deuterium and your tritium. Mm. Why can't you just use deuterium? Why do you need the tritium as well? No, that's a really good question. So Thank you. The, the answer is you can do deuterium-deuterium fusion. It's just harder. So the... You mean you need it hotter? You need it hotter. So instead of 100 million degrees, you're talking 300 million degrees. So it's right. about 300 times hotter. 
Mm. And the devices end up bigger as well. So actually, in the long run... So the tritium reduces the the required temperature. Correct. It's a bit like the difference between gasoline and diesel. Um, diesel, Gasoline is easier to ignite than diesel. But, you know, you can make a pretty good engine using diesel as well. So you've got your hydrogen atoms crashing around. Mm. You need to get it very, very hot in order to make them not only crash into each other but bind together. Correct. Why does heat make them bind together? It's not it's not actually the heat the directly. Or uh, maybe maybe the pressure. But actually if you zoom in on on what's happening, um, those uh, atoms are, or those nuclei are positively charged, and so they want to repel. So the vast majority of impacts, they don't quite get close enough, and then they spin out mm. and spin off back into the plasma. Um, and every so often, if you get it just right, they have enough velocity and have the correct angle to each other, and they can get close enough for the second force to come uh, and take over. So that's the strong nuclear force. Physicists have four forces, and we say that describes the whole universe, basically. And so the nuclear force takes over and There's binds them together. new force they're thinking about now, though, of course. That's kind of the muon shifting force. I, I have not. Oh, maybe keep I've, up. I, I know. Oh, I've just been keeping my head down thinking anyway. about fusion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Okay. Awesome. You only need two nuclei? Well, you need that to have them once, but you've got a whole bunch of them, yeah. Crashing around. Yeah. But but how many in your average reactor, Mm. how many would you need to bind together? Uh, That's a hard number to say in English. Um, In mathematics, we would say 10 to the 20. So that's a one with 20 zeros behind it. So what's that? That's like a billion billion, nearly 10 mm. billion billion. So it's quite a few uh, quite a few events. Okay. So you've got these two hydrogen atoms. They're binding together. They make helium, mm-hmm. two hydrogen, one helium. Correct. With some energy. Yes. Produced. Yes. Why is there spare energy from that? Oh, um, why is there spare energy? So it's just like any reaction. uh, The universe has a kind of preferred way of arranging things. So you can actually keep doing nuclear fusion and keep getting energy out until you get to iron. Iron is the last element uh, that is kind of the lowest energy state from a nuclear force perspective. So if you have a star, it's Mm. going to keep fusing. It starts with a hydrogen, goes to helium. It creates lithium, beryllium, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. Keeps going uh, through all these elements until it hits iron. Iron is the last one of these um, elements that it doesn't give you any more energy if you try to fuse it. Every All of the elements heavier than iron were not created uh, through fusion. They were created through other methods in, in the cosmos. All right. There's no greenhouse gases. There's a bit of nuclear waste, but nothing you say to worry about. The, the big part of uh, the nuclear waste question is uh, it does not last for the tens of thousands of years that the fission reactor waste lasts for. So the really scary, the two scary things about the 
fission reactors are accidents where you contaminate not just the the machines but also the communities where those machines exist. Mm. So you're talking about widespread community risk. That's not the case in fusion. But obviously, I mean, I am a little concerned about something that's 100 million degrees. The the risk um, involved here is purely to the machines. And therefore, also, if you well, unfortunately it, have someone... Isn't the risk of explosion there? Uh, it's the same that you would have in other Your kinds of... Your average gas station. Oh, yeah. I'd be... Yeah, cars make me more nervous. Oh, me. really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what is the, the next thing that you need to tell you that you are on the right track here? Uh, so the investors care a lot about this. Uh, they care about how we stage what we call risk retirement. I so mean, that's what worries people, thing. right? Mm-hmm. Here you are, mm. and you're saying, yeah, we've, you know, we haven't actually got this, but we're getting this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain amount of PR that you have to do mm-hmm. in order to secure your funding and sure. keep your investors happy. Yeah. So, So I'm trying to figure out how much of what you're saying is PR... Hmm. And how much is real hardcore laboratory stuff? So I, I don't actually think there's much of a gap between what I would want to say from a PR perspective and what I'd say just as an engineer or a physicist. So I'm always super upfront with investors and with staff joining OpenStar. And it comes back to that point of we, we treat it as our job to prove that this won't work for as little time, as little money as possible. So when I first had this idea, I spent a year just reading the literature, trying to figure out on paper why the thing wouldn't work, right? Was there a result in one of the papers published that just said this is a stupid idea um, and the only and you thing you could come up with was the money went away yeah really yeah and we've spoken to the people involved as well and um that that was a huge shock for them as well i wonder i mean this is in this realm of speculation obviously but i wonder how many things in the world mm. could have made the world a better place mm. if somebody had just left their money in there oh absolutely it's a great question i think quite a lot like, you know... Levitated dipole. Levitated, yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay. So you spend a year trying to work out why this couldn't work and you couldn't find a reason for why couldn't it couldn't work. Couldn't find on paper. And so the reasons will come... If they exist, the reasons will come from building machines. So the first machine that we're building, uh, the risk we're trying to retire is whether or not the HTS, this new superconductor technology, can in fact be made into the kinds of magnets we need for a levitated dipole reactor. Um, That is more of an engineering question than a physics question. Um, but when you say an engineering question, what do you what do you mean? Talented human beings trying to solve problems, uh, make machines that can make but, up I mean, the machines. You've got, and you've got the high temperature superconductors, mm-hmm. so just turn them into magnets. What's your problem? <laughs> oh man, I I hope my head of magnet engineering uh, heard that. I'll I'll repeat it to him. Yeah. What's what's the problem? Um, the the problem is that we, we would use this language called technology readiness level. The thing is that very few people have built these kinds of magnets up to these kinds of fields and performances. In particular for our machine, the real big challenge is that that magnet needs to levitate and we can't make mechanical contact to it during an experiment. So everything that that magnet needs to keep operating needs to be on board the magnet. It needs to go along for the ride. It may as well be on the moon if we're operating the machine. Um, that 
adds a bunch of technical questions which we think we have good answers to in part because we came from Robinson Research. I mean when you say levitated mm. you literally mean in just levitated. We, we put it in a huge vacuum chamber, it's about five metres wide, and then we put another magnet on top, and magnets attract each other. Yeah. So we use that magnet on top to lift it up and take up the weight. But the you magnet, don't want it to touch. Correct. So we lift it up halfway, and we don't let it go up for any further, and we don't let it drop down. Ah. It's an active control problem, actually. Okay. It's about half a tonne magnet, too, so that's stressing people out. It's so you haven't fun. managed to do that, but yet... But it has been done before. So from that perspective, we are copying... By you? Uh, no, else? no, by MIT. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that experiment at MIT already proved out those those types of aspects. Is there the MIT thing that was abandoned due to lack of funding? Have you gone beyond that in any area? From a physics perspective, absolutely not. And that's not what we're trying to do with this machine. What we are trying to do is shift to the high-temperature superconductor. So that machine at uh, MIT was made from the low-temperature superconductor, ah. so that old material. And in fact, that experiment was literally the limit of what you could do with that material. It couldn't be pushed any further. Because it was a low-temperature superconductor. Correct. So all these other startups around the world the fusion startups, if they're listening to this, would they go, damn, that's what we need. We need <laughs> high-temperature superconductors. And they'll all race off and get high-temperature superconductors. And then, you know, you're busted. Uh, so we're a second mover on that front. So there are already bigger fusion companies who are buying way more of this material than we are. Ah. Um, but the manufacturers of that material do not like the idea of only having one client. So they're quite interested in selling to multiple companies working on this stuff. So when you hear of other people doing this or doing that, you know, when you heard, for example, of the National Ignition Facility in the United States for the second time, achieving fusion ignition in the laboratory with a net gain in energy, which turns out was bullshit because they had all that laser input. <laughs> yeah. No one understand. Sure. Did you think, oh, no, they're, they're catching up with us and they're beating us and what are we going to do? No. Um, so, I mean, we've talked a lot about ITA. We've talked a little bit about the lasers mm. um, and some of the other companies. I actually I don't think of this like a race between us and the companies and the public. No, because the, the, you don't need to. The, what we're trying to do is solve a problem. You can ignore everybody else trying to solve a problem and just think about how you're going to solve it. The problem is sitting there. We need to solve uh, clean energy to uh, mitigate climate change. That's the, no, nothing else matters. Just focus on what you're doing. And but surely stick to what it. matters is if somebody's way ahead of you in the game, you're wasting your time. Well, um, in hindsight, people might call it a waste of time, but I think everybody will just be happy that the problem was solved, and so no one's going to think that we were too stupid for giving it a shot. Somebody says, we don't need massively expensive, a listener says, we don't need called. Michael, we don't need massively expensive and endlessly unrealized nuclear reactors. We need more wind energy and solar energy. Yep. What do you think? So, yeah, that, yeah, I can get a little bit philosophical on that. So, 
I'm by no means opposed to wind, solar, the other kinds of renewables. Um, hydro I do have opinions of, but we've basically run out of opportunities to deploy new hydro resources. The wind and solar becomes this big question about intermittency, building huge battery banks to uh, mitigate that. But the thing that solar in particular has going for it is that it gets cheaper and cheaper every year. And if you draw the line, you know, going out into the future about how cheap you expect solar to get, um, it is really encouraging. Um, so I'm not saying that um, we don't have other shots on goal. Just like I don't think like this is a competition, uh, we've got other shots on goal. Solar is definitely one of them. But I don't want to hinge the fate of humanity just on levitated dipole reactors. I don't want to hinge it just on tokamaks. And I don't want to hinge it on the hope that solar keeps getting cheaper. That trend could stop in a couple of years for all we know. So... The way you would look at this is having another option. Absolutely. And this is the option that me and my team and a huge number of engineers and physicists happen to be particularly skilled and expert in trying to solve. This is the one that we can really contribute to. If you ask me to help build uh, better solar panels, I didn't do my PhD in that. I'm not going to be anywhere near as useful. Somebody has texted to say, cold fusion is the holy grail. It is cold fusion... Is that what this is? No, no. This is the definition of hot fusion. So, so when 300 they, million degrees. So when they say cold fusion, they're talking about something else. Yeah. So there were there was a period where people were trying to get fusion reactant reactions to happen much closer to room temperature. Oh, right. And that would be called cold in, in respect. And that could get rid of the big magnets, the big lasers, all this kind of stuff. All right. Um, but we've never seen convincing results come out of any cold okay. fusion project. That's sad because this person is very excited by the prospect of you doing cold fusion. <laughs> no, no, we're going to do hot fusion. It's going to be will great. literally save the world. Great to see the New Zealand team doing this. Keep the government away from it, so on and so on. <laughs> what, if, what if the government came to you and said, we like what you're doing. Mm. Here's a couple of billion dollars. Mm. You'd take that, presumably. That's, a, again, a really good question, and it has a big caveat to it. So the someone asked me this, if you had unlimited money, could you solve a problem? It's not just for money. It's actually the risk appetite. So one of the things that differentiates the private investors that we have from, say, governments is the amount of risk they're willing to take with the money. So if the government turns up and gives me $2 billion and they're happy to lose it because we fail, because Mother Nature disagrees, then I'll take the money. If they want to uh, give provisos about how we manage the risk and structure the project and then it ends up taking 15 to 20 years because we're always too afraid to take the next big step, then I'm not touching it. I'll, I'll stick with private capital. I, I, You know, the plan is to have a functioning power plant device by the 2030s. Yeah. Functioning power plant device might be you know, a little proof of concept mm -hmm. in the Ngaranga Gorge. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Uh, for some fusion concepts, it is. Uh, but in particular for the levitated dipole, the physics and engineering tells us one thing, which is that we want to make these things big. And so I actually think that those original power plants, they're going to end up being pretty big pretty quick. Um, that, doesn't, that, that just puts it in a different spot in the power ecosystem on the grid. Somebody says, don't make the mistake, and this is what you, you referred to earlier, I think. Don't make the mistake of confusing temperature and heat. Mm. 100 million degrees is a high temperature. Yeah. 
but the quantity of high temperature material is small. Yes. Would you rather, they say, put your fingers in a bucket of water at 100 degrees or put out a candle flame at 1,000 degrees with your finger, presumably? So the extremely high temperatures involved in fusion reactors don't imply massive disaster in the case of a catastrophic failure. I don't understand the logic they're using, do you? That is the argument I tried to make, and I'm very glad that the listeners have my back. That's wow. awesome. That's probably your mother, is it? Uh, <laughs> Hopefully. It might be, let, my, it might be my partner. Let me explain what he's trying to say. Um, okay. No. They say they didn't mean cold fusion. They meant cold. Oh, fusion, not fission. That still oh. remains to me. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. A point of complication and confusion, doesn't it? Mm. People, what about the H bomb? Oh, uh, have you seen Oppenheimer? <laughs> Not yet. I went to Barbie instead. Oh, you got to do a Barbenheimer. I haven't done my Barbie part of Barbenheimer yet. Um, why can't you make a little H bomb in a contained circumstance? Uh, if it is were... that what you're doing? Uh, can, it's not contains not quite the right the right way to think about it. So, all of the kinds of reactors we're trying to build, it's so hard to keep the reaction going that as soon as we take our hand off the scale, as soon as like a piece of equipment breaks or we get a little power cut or that thing fails, the reaction stops. Um, it doesn't keep going. So that's kind of the definition of the opposite of a bomb. The opposite of a bomb. Bombs are things that you do one little thing and then the reaction just keeps going right. until you have an explosion. Okay. Yeah. Because so these are you want it reactors, to be out of control. Exactly. Essentially. Destruction rather than creation. All right. Um, you don't mind having, obviously, you relish the thought of having, you know, years and years ahead of you working on this one thing. Mm. Because to you, is it lots of separate things? Which will add up eventually all going well to one thing. Um, you asked me before what I find terrifying about that. this. Um, the length of time, the commitment, the 7 to 10 to 20 years, 30 years of my life coming up because I've made this choice. I do find that at a personal level pretty daunting um, rather than relishing the thought. Well, I'd, you think, oh, God, if only I'd taken up deep sea diving. So for me, it's more about... I think that me and my team had a really unique shot at making a contribution here, and we have a responsibility to do that. You look at it from that perspective and you really don't have a choice in the matter. It's not about what I would want to do in five, seven years. If this is the best thing that I can be doing, it's what I need to be doing. And it, do, it, does, it doesn't daunt you that there are, you know, the great brains of our generation all over the world thinking about this. You're not um, easily intellectually cowed, obviously. Uh, it's not, it's a bit like the competition thing again, right? So A, if they're working on something else, I don't find that intimidating. And B, we've had great conversations with researchers and scientists in the field across the world who want to work on this with us as well. So the fact that there are these huge minds on it is a good thing, uh, not just for Fusion, but also for OpenStar. Um, that's very philanthropic of you, actually. I mean, you know... You can say, we're working to save the world, we're not working to win the Nobel Prize, although it comes to the same thing in the end, we all know that. 
Somebody, and I knew they would, has mentioned thorium. Do you know anything about thorium? I do know a lot about thorium. So why not thorium, molten salt reactor? Um, Kim, do you remember the first time we met? Oh, God, were we talking about thorium? We were talking about thorium. No, I can't remember. Oh, that's a shame. I remember it, but do I was you? a young man, yeah. Wow. So I, I stood up in a um, science speech competition oh, you in were. Eureka. Yep. You were at Eureka. And I, I was pitching thorium. This uh, is the Paul Callahan Eureka. student science competition. Absolutely. Competition. And that was about a decade ago now, wow. which is, yeah, I'm getting old. Um. And I was pitching thorium reactors. So if I had to pick a fission reactor technology, I'd 100% uh, build that from a purely engineering perspective, fission. I think. Fission, but with thorium. So I think thorium is a really cool idea. But that's just on the engineering front. The physics front is uh, solved. We know how those machines work. The engineering still needs to be done. But there is so much more about building machines like this than just the engineering that mean that actually I think fusion is a better pathway and something that I can give a better contribution to. Wow. So all that um, that energy you expended on that presentation at Eureka <laughs> was a it complete was, waste of time. No, it was great practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been lovely talking to you. People have sent you lots of appreciation. They want you to produce... A Ratu T-shirt. <laughs> I'll let someone else do that. And yeah, and okay, I just put it out there. And we have a track, especially for you. This track is called Divine Physics. Proteins of Magic is the artist, Altera artist Kerry Sherrod. Have you heard? No, I'm Kerry looking forward to this. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, um, they're based in Nashville. And she was back home for a release tour earlier this year with this new single, Divine Physics. <laughs> 